You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. In this episode of Spectral Skull Session, part two of our investigation into Atlantis. Last episode, I summarized what Plato says about Atlantis in the two dialogues where he mentions it, Timaeus and Critias. The main points that came out of the discussion were as follows. Atlantis was an island inhabited by 10 human families who were descended from Poseidon. They mastered agriculture, irrigation, and plumbing, including hot and cold water plumbing, but were not otherwise technologically advanced. They were initially a simple people. They had collective wealth, but preferred to live plainly. And that all changed in Atlantis' history as the divine blood of Poseidon became diluted. Atlantis waged a world war against Athens, but were ultimately defeated. The gods punished Athens by sinking it into the ocean. After Atlantis sank into the sea, the place where it had been became muddy and impassable to ships. In this episode, we will be moving beyond the details of Plato's story to ask, did Atlantis really exist? And ultimately, the answer that I'm going to give you is a qualified Yes. Hold on to your butts, because we're about to tunnel through lore and legend, straight through the aeons of time and back to the edge of the Ice Age. This is the Spectral Skull Session. I am your host, Dane. Chris is on hiatus. Do you ever have this problem? You're getting ready for a long walk in the woods, and you want to roll a spliff of smokable herb. You've got your herb in the bathroom. You're rooting around in your toiletries kit for medical scissors so you can chop it up nice and fine, but then you have to go get a plate from the kitchen. When you're all done, it's a mess. You've got herbs all over the bathroom, your hands smell like herb, you've got to wash all this stuff and put it back. It takes forever to get out the door, you're not vibing, you got to light that spliff up before you can feel at peace. Ugh. Luckily, Happy Trees has the solution. A premium grade stash box from Happy Trees. That's happytreesupplies.com. Happy Tree sells a convenient lockable stash box. It comes with a four-piece titanium grinder that will give you the smooth grind you've been looking for. The 50 diamond cut teeth grinds your herb to the perfect size for cones and rolls. The neodymium magnets keep the lid on tight while you grind. There's also a stash jar which will protect your herb from damaging UV rays and keep moisture in so your stash stays fresh. The airtight seal helps keep smells inside so you can save them for yourself. There's also a metal rolling tray so you can save every precious bud. And everything fits snugly into the box. Plus it has a key so your nosy roommate or your little brother isn't poking around in your stash. They come in three varieties. 
there's the Metatron's Cube-themed box that has Metatron's Cube etched on the box in every accessory. Metatron's Cube is a sacred image associated with the angel who translates the directives of God into a form comprehensible to humans. This is according to the Kabbalah. There's also a Desert Visions-themed box. It has colorful desert scenes painted onto the accessories. And for those of you who prefer plain, there's a box made of bamboo that is just adorable. I have my own Happy Tree stash box. Yes, I use it to hold my stash. I absolutely love it. These boxes range from $38.90 to $28.90 on the website, happytreesupplies.com. But now Happy Trees is offering a special deal to anyone who listens to this show. Use the coupon code SPECTRAL20 for a 20% discount. What are you waiting for? Skip the mess, get organized, and preserve your stash from degrading ultraviolet light and snoopy little thieves who try to make off with your herb. Check out happytreesupplies.com. That's happytreesupplies.com. I've had a lot of fun this week thinking about Plato's story of Atlantis, uh, doing the research and asking myself, how would I prove this to be true? So if you think the story of Atlantis is true, what would you do as a researcher to verify it? You know, you can't interrogate Plato because he's dead, but you can scrutinize Plato's writings closely. It's worth taking a moment to consider the arguments that have been made for and against taking Plato's story of Atlantis at face value as a story that Plato at least intended to be true. On one hand, most people have historically regarded the story as a mere legend. It was created by Plato to bolster the argument in Republic, so they say. The Republic is Plato's best-known work, and in it he describes the ideal city and spells out the policies that would be required to preserve the ideal city so that justice and happiness could endure. Near the end of Republic, Plato describes a cyclical way in which cities break down. He describes a process of moving from rule by philosophers to rule by military leaders to democracy and ultimately tyranny. Now, the story of Atlantis as a story of a divine people who initially live peacefully but eventually fall to ruin sounds like another version of what he tells us in Republic. So clearly, Plato is using Atlantis to reinforce his agenda. So the argument for rejecting Atlantis as a mere myth goes like this. The Atlantis story is one that Plato would have wanted his audience to believe because it serves as an example that supports his political vision. Therefore, we should not trust it. I think this is a bad argument. If we accept it, then anytime anyone offers us empirical evidence to support their beliefs, we should doubt their evidence. I would think also that Plato just as easily may have gotten his political agenda from hearing about stories of cyclical destruction of civilizations, such as the story of Atlantis. So it could be that Atlantis is a piece of empirical evidence that came before Plato formed his political views discussed in Republic. Now here's a somewhat better argument for dismissing Atlantis as fiction. People rightly point out that Plato is a trickster. He writes an allegory, often telling stories such as the parable of the cave, the Ladder of Love, the Ring of Gyges, the City in Speech, and he uses these stories to make his points. Let me give you one example. The cave is a story about people deep underground who are chained to a wall. Underneath the mouth of the cave and opposite from them, 
they can see shadows cast from a fire. They think the shadows represent real things. Indeed, they think shadows are what reality is, but they're just watching a puppet show. And when one of them escapes and gets out of the cave, he is astonished to see what reality is really like with colors and three dimensions. He goes back and tries to tell the other prisoners what he's seen, and they laugh at him. They point out he isn't even very good at interpreting shadows anymore. Being up in the light and seeing the real world has changed the way he perceives information and the way his brain thinks. They take this as evidence that he's a demented fool. Now this parable of the cave is Plato's most famous allegory. Plato uses it to defend the life of the philosopher. He says that philosophers can access a higher reality and they can see things the way they really are, but the philosopher isn't very good at winning people over who haven't gone to the higher realms with their mind. So if you haven't visited the higher realm of reality yourself, you can't even imagine what's up there. And so you will regard people who have knowledge of the higher realm as a fool. Plato's agenda is certainly showing here. Remember, he ran an academy. We can see his texts as introductions to his work, works that hint that there's a secret teaching, which the academy could reveal to you. Besides being a thrilling story that reinforces the occult orientation to reality by suggesting that there are higher realms that we can access through, through some kind of process of self-discipline, I'm telling you the parable of the cave to make a point. Uh, Plato does use a lot of parables, allegories, and storytelling devices in order to persuade his audience. And beyond that, the very subject matter he writes about, hidden realities inaccessible to the masses, reinforce this idea that he's a trickster whose words cannot always be taken at face value. At least, so goes the argument. But I want to step in here now with a counter-argument. In my view, when Plato tells a story, he warns his audience it's just a story. He doesn't represent the story as being true, like he does with Atlantis. He tells us explicitly, what I'm about to tell you is an analogy or a parable. I actually ran this by a Plato scholar at a local university just before working on this podcast. And he agreed with me, although he did remind me there is one dialogue where Plato talks about reincarnation that sort of breaks this pattern. In the story Mino, the elderly Socrates is talking to a younger man who is an aspiring military leader named Mino. In order to convince Mino to take his studies seriously, Socrates tries to convince him that we have all possible knowledge already locked inside of us. We only have to learn how to access it. And how could this be? Well, Socrates says he's heard many wise men and also some inspired poets talk about how when we die, our souls go to an underworld. The worst among us are sent to hell. The best are made immortal gods. And most of us get sent back to reborn. Socrates tells a story to make a point you have all the knowledge there is to have already in you because you've already seen all that there is to see. You only have to recollect things that you learned in past lives. So learning shouldn't really be that much of a challenge. Here, Socrates is clearly telling a story to make a point. He does not preface it by saying, this is a work of fiction or this is just a story. He flat out tells Mino he thinks the story is both true and beautiful. So is this evidence that Plato is a manipulative trickster? I don't think so. Plato very well probably believed in reincarnation himself. 
I would direct the listener to episode 11 of Spectral Skull Session, Psychedelic Mystery Beer Cults, where Chris and I discuss how the ancient Greek world was held together by some kind of mysterious rite, the Eleusinian Mysteries. It's been argued recently that the ancients undertook some kind of very powerful ritual, and this ritual gave them direct access to the reality of life after death, including possibly reincarnation. So the story of Mino is not an example of Plato blatantly passing a false story off as true. It may be that you don't believe in reincarnation. We have no reason to think that Plato didn't believe in reincarnation. Consider that Plato does the same thing in Timaeus. We talked in the last episode about how in Timaeus, the astronomer Timaeus gives this very trippy account of the origin of the cosmos, including saying it was crafted by a demiurge or divine craftsman, and that the fundamental building blocks of reality are triangles. Plato's figure Timaeus is very careful to point out this is a likely story, a story that has just as much likelihood as being true as any other story that people tell about the heavens. So here again, we see when Plato uses a story to make a point, he introduces qualifications and caveats. He either says this isn't literally a true story, or he says it's a story that may not be true. But in Timaeus and Critias, the character Critias tells us no less than 20 times that the story he is repeating is a true story that he got ultimately from Solon, who got it from the Egyptians. Plato's trickster nature aside, there's no reason to think that when he tells us about Atlantis, he's not repeating something that he believes to be literally true. So of these two arguments for not taking the story of Atlantis seriously, the argument that it fits an agenda and the argument that Plato uses allegory, neither work. The agenda-fitting argument doesn't work because Plato's agenda may well have been set by his own exposure to stories of cyclical destruction. The allegory argument doesn't work because Plato always warns us when he's using allegory. And let me make another point that suggests to me the veracity of the text. I got this thought from Cisrob, who is a Plato scholar on Reddit. Cisrob pointed out to me how weird it is that Plato goes into so much detail about Atlantis. If it's just a parable, why describe the shape of the island, the moats, the plumbing, the temple of Poseidon? Why go into all that detail if it's just a fake story to illustrate a point? So those are some reasons why I think we should be open to taking Plato as telling a true story when he discusses Atlantis. And I think we should look at it this way. Even if Plato is telling the truth, it's still the case that he got the story from someone who got it from Solon, who got it from the ancient Egyptians, who just happened to have records that go back 9,000 years. No one who believes that Plato is telling the truth is thereby committed to the 100% accuracy of the story. Of course, over 9,100 years, this story may have been altered significantly. But the possibility that it's a true story, at least intended to be true, should not be discarded. That's all the time we have to interrogate Plato's text itself. What are some other methods for finding out the truth about Atlantis? Well, you might look to see if the story of Atlantis or something similar to Atlantis appears anywhere else. Do other ancient people have stories about decadent civilizations being destroyed by floods, precipitated by angry gods? Well, it turns out they do. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the book of Genesis, 
which contains the story of Noah. Noah was a holy man who narrowly escaped a flood sent by Elohim, Elohim being a respectful placeholder that I use instead of the name of the God of the Hebrews. Here's a quote from Genesis. Elohim saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Elohim regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So Elohim said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Elohim warns Noah that he's going to flood the earth. He informs Noah that it's time to build an ark and put two of each kind of animal on it. Noah does it, and he gets his family and their spouses on board, and they wait out the flood for 40 days, and afterwards they repopulate the earth, and God sends a rainbow in the sky to signal that he will never again attempt to exterminate the human race. And folks, as much as I would love to take credit for noticing this parallel between Atlantis and Genesis, I cannot claim the credit. There's a man, Ignatius Donnelly. He wrote the book on Atlantis way back in 1890. It's titled Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, and this is the book that I consulted. Donnelly points out that many civilizations have a flood story. For example, the native Mexican historian Xichotl describes the Toltec legend of the flood as follows. It's found in the history of the Toltecs that this age and first world, as they call it, lasted 1,716 years, that men were destroyed by tremendous rains and lightning from the sky and even all the land without the exception of anything, and the highest mountains were covered up and submerged in water. And here they added other fables of how men came to multiply from the few who escaped from this destruction. The Toltecs, considering of seven friends with their wives who understood the same language, came to these parts, having first passed great land and seas, having lived in caves, and having endured great hardships in order to reach this land. They wandered 104 years through different parts of the world before they reached this land. Ignatius Donnelly points out that other indigenous people of Mexico have another story about a man named Coxcox, or Tezipi, who saved his wife from a terrible flood by making a raft out of bark. Donnelly also points out the ancient Sumerian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh, contains a flood story. Flood stories were told by the ancient Babylonians, the Chinese, the Norse, the Irish, and even the Hawaiians, just to name a few. In fact, Donnelly claims that everyone has a world-destroying flood myth, except the Egyptians. And he says, look, they probably didn't need a world-destroying flood myth because they had the actual story, the story of Atlantis. So the point of all this discussion is, uh, why are all these different people talking about massive civilization-destroying floods? Well, Donnelly was the first that I know of to suggest maybe a big civilization-destroying flood actually happened. Honestly, I don't know what other reasonable possibilities there could be. I suppose um, it could just be that floods happen a lot, and maybe uh, when people see floods, the idea of a world-destroying flood just naturally occurs to them. I do recall having these thoughts when I was living in the Mississippi Valley region during the flood of 93. That was a 500-year flood. And yes, I did think, well, what if it just keeps going? 
and doesn't stop. So maybe anyone could think that. But then again, I had already heard the story of Atlantis and also the story of Noah. So I feel like I had already been primed to have thoughts about destructive floods. Another possibility is there was one really bad flood somewhere. This flood inspired all the flood stories around the world. Maybe it was a really good flood story, so people kept circulating it around. They liked to tell it, and then it got changed and altered in each civilization. But if that's the case, then it sounds like we're right back to the idea that the Atlanta story is roughly true. If some civilization somewhere got flooded, and this is the reason why Plato wrote the myth of Atlantis, I would say, boom, Atlantis is true. So there's a lot in Ignatius Donnelly's book. I'm not going to go into it all. It's a very old book, and you can get it for free off the internet. That's how I got it. It should be noted that Donnelly makes some very bold claims in this book, and that may be part of why it's fallen out of favor. He claims Atlantis was a kind of universal progenitor civilization. He thinks the reason why the Egyptians and Mayans, the Mayans being uh, indigenous people of Central America, both built pyramids is because they were both colonies of Atlantis. And I will say one more thing. Donnelly thinks the Pillars of Hercules had to be the Straits of Gibraltar, and he thinks Atlantis was in the Azores. The Azores are some beautiful islands controlled by Portugal in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They are volcanic peaks, and Donnelly maintains that they are the peaks of the mountains of Atlantis, the rest of the island being totally submerged. And he points out they have hot springs in the Azores, and... Plato, in the story of Atlantis, talks about how the Atlanteans had mastered hot plumbing. So maybe Atlantis was in the Azores. Uh, but one thing that is kind of a knock on Donnelly, he talks about nautical floor measurements, suggesting that there is a shallow area around the Azores, which could likely be the place where Atlantis was located. And it would also help explain why the water was muddy after Atlantis sunk, because he says, well, it didn't sink very far. But I looked this up on Google Earth. I looked at the ocean depth around the Azores. There's shallow water in a triangular formation around the islands, yes. And that shallower region is large enough that if it were raised to land, it would be significant enough to host a very nice country, maybe the size of, I think it's a little smaller than like a France or a Germany type nation. However, even between the islands, the water is still a thousand meters deep. That struck me as pretty deep, even though it's shallower than the rest of the Atlantic, which is often 3,000 to 4,000 meters deep. It's still so deep that I'm skeptical. The account of muddy water that made the region impassable for ships. Why do I think a thousand feet is likely to be too deep to have been the location of Atlantis? Well, that brings me to the last source we will be discussing today. He is the contemporary king of Atlantis research, Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock is alive today. He's a journalist who's published a number of books arguing for advanced prehistorical civilizations. Hancock's central thesis is that the Atlanteans did exist. They were an advanced super civilization. Hancock may be seen as a neo-Donnellian. He seems to be following the footsteps of Ignatius Donnelly and developing a new version of Donnelly's theory. I need to give some background information in order to explain Graham Hancock's argument in a way that will sound plausible to the listener, and I think this will have some real payoff. First of all, 
It's important to note that the most recent ice age began 2 million years ago, and it persisted until about 11,000 years ago. Meanwhile, modern humans have existed for over 100,000 years. The scientists are pretty sure about this. They found cave paintings that are 40,000 to 70,000 years old. This suggests that intelligent humans, capable of tools, creativity, and abstract thought, were roaming around our planet. For most of our existence, people like us dwelt on a planet that was much colder, much drier, without building cities or engaging in agriculture. And so there is this broad consensus that the end of the Ice Age was what triggered the development of human civilizations. Before that, it was too cold and dry over too much of the planet. And at the tail end of the Ice Age was a weird little period called the Younger Dryas Cold Spell. This was a series of cataclysms. It began with a catastrophic flood that scientists called Meltwater Pulse 1A. It was followed by wild fluctuations in temperature, then extreme cold that lasted a couple thousand years. At the end of the Younger Dryas, there was another global flood, Meltwater Pulse 1B, and then the Earth began warming up to a state that is similar to what it is like today. So the Younger Dryas period was a mass extinction event. There were worldwide die-offs of flora and fauna, and between the two meltwater pulses, the ocean rose 28 meters. Hang on to that number, 28 meters. So the consensus seems to be that for most of our history that we were on this planet, we lived on a world that was too inhospitable for the construction of civilization. We couldn't have done it during most of the Ice Age, and then we certainly couldn't have done it during the Younger Dryas Cold Spell. And that's why all the ruins we have are no more than 10,000 years old. So nothing I've told you so far is esoteric or occult or extreme. This is all just part of the consensus picture. So let's talk a little bit about what we do know about human history. Our first records of the ancient Egyptians go back to 3,150 BCE. That's about 5,000 years ago. For reference, Stonehenge was thought to have been built around that time. Nortu Chico in Peru is a ruin believed to have been built around 4,000 BCE. The Mesopotamians in Iraq started with agriculture about 6,500 years ago, which would take us almost 10,000 years, but we're still about 1,500 years after the end of the Ice Age. The Jiezhu in China go back 7,000 years. And there's a ruin in Jordan, the Ani Ghazal, believed to have been built 7,200 years ago. They also found the ruins of a town in Turkey about 7,500 BCE. That would put it about 10,500 years ago. So the oldest ruins we have all begin after the Ice Age. So that's consistent with this consensus picture that we needed the Ice Age to end in order for us humans to start building cities. But there is one weird exception. I'm sorry, it's in Turkey. Its name is Gobekli Tepe, and it is believed to possibly be 12,000 years old. They found 43 megaliths at this site. These are mainly T-shaped pillars of soft limestone up to around 16 feet in height. They were excavated and transported from a stone quarry on a lower hill in the area. There's also evidence that the people at Gobekli Tepe had awareness of astronomy and that they oriented their site to the stars. So this site, Gobekli Tepe, is where Graham Hancock's work 
inserts itself into the consensus story. Hancock points out, if Gobekli Tepe is 12,000 years old, then we have proof that human civilization got started during the Ice Age. And if human civilization got started during the Ice Age, then it's almost a guarantee that some human city was destroyed by the catastrophes of the Younger Dryas, either Meltwater Pulse 1A or 1B, if not both. So Graham Hancock points to the geological record, this indisputed record of global superfloods. Then he points to Plato's story of Atlantis. Remember how we said Plato got Atlantis from Solon, who got it from the Egyptians, who recorded it 9,000 years prior? Well, if you add 2021, that's our current year, to 9,000, then another 100 years for Solon, you end up with a dating for Atlantis that brings it right back to the end of the Ice Age, around the time of Meltwater Pulse 1B, that global superflood. So that, at least in my judgment, is Hancock's best argument for Atlantis being a true story. Now, he doesn't stop there. Postulating the existence of a global super-civilization before the Younger Dryas, Hancock has written many books. One of them is uh, Underworld, in which he catalogs some of the ruins around the world that are submerged at a depth of less than 50 meters. Recall the world's oceans are believed to have risen about 28 meters during the Younger Dryas. And one of these ruins that I find fascinating is Yonaguni Jima, located off the shore of Japan. This appears to be a massive ziggurat and temple complex. The upper platform of it is submerged under the water about 10 meters. Now, Graham Hancock gets pushback on all of his work. People dispute whether Yonaguni Jima is man-made or whether it's a natural formation. It's also important to note that structures can sink into the water for localized reasons because the ground level in that area can change. A lot can change over thousands of years. So nothing that he has is slam down proof that there was a global prehistoric civilization that was urbanized and flooded. This is probably why in his various books arguing for a universal progenitor civilization, Hancock brings in other sources of evidence. For example, he argues that various ancient structures around the world are oriented towards the constellation Orion, or at least where Orion would have been tens of thousands of years ago. The widespread orientation of structures to an ancient location of Orion is supposed to be evidence that the same civilization built all these structures. Hancock also brings in astronomy, pointing to evidence that the Younger Dryas was caused by a comet that hit Greenland. He tries to bring in orbital periods to make sense of the Younger Dryas cold spell, making a case that this large comet was on a path that intersected Earth. It broke up due to Earth's gravitational field. The pieces kept moving in orbit, and each successive time their orbit intersected with Earth, we would get hit by another piece of the comet. And this is why the Younger Dryas was thousands of years of cold and wet, and defined by two global superfloods. He also argues the Sphinx is older than recognized. In his view, it's actually a relic from pre-Ice Age civilization. He has a wide variety of lines of argument. I won't go into them here. You need to go pick up some of his books and take a look at them if you want to know more. The big criticisms Graham Hancock gets, one, he's not an academic researcher, and two, his work reeks of pattern seeking. So with regards to two, there's so many ancient structures out there you can form a hypothesis like ancient structures are oriented to Orion. And if you only pay attention to a subset of the ancient structures, you can build your case. You can say, 
well, that structure is not oriented to Orion. Well, that's just evidence that it wasn't built by this super race before the Ice Age. So yes, that's a fair criticism that can be made. And if you want to delve into it more, I also know the BBC did a documentary where they uh, criticized Graham Hancock's work. But I want to give you a quick and tentative defense of at least Hancock's project. This man is a journalist. He's not a scientist or historical scholar. I think it's perfectly fine to pursue novel truth outside of the academy. Investigative journalism, like the work Hancock does, fits into a particular epistemic tradition that I think academics don't always respect suitably. Journalists, it's their job to find interesting patterns, things that stick out, that look noteworthy. They then present those patterns in a way that literate people can also see them. And they're basically just, you know, pointing and waving and saying, look at this interesting thing over here. Doesn't it look like this is something that we should pay more attention to? If people agree, then eventually scholars get involved and they look into what the journalist is looking into. They bring their more stringent epistemic standards to bear. So I wouldn't get too hard on Graham Hancock. I also don't think a lot in our personal lives is writing on whether Atlantis existed or not. So uh, if we're wrong and Graham Hancock is wrong, it wouldn't be the end of the world if he fooled some people. Definitely take a look at his work yourself because it's really fascinated me. We're nearing the end of this episode, so I want to give you my sense of what we can take from the Atlantis story. I've presented you with Plato's story, Donnelly's story about a civilization located in the Azores, and Graham Hancock's story about a universal progenitor civilization destroyed by the Ice Age. And my own view is that the basic evidence supplied by scientists, put together with Graham Hancock's work, combined with Ignatius Donnelly's notes on the universal flood story, actually supports at least a partial version of Plato's account. So let me recap what we know. First, Plato says Atlantis was flooded a little over 11,000 years ago. Two, scientists agree there was a cataclysmic flood around 11,000 years ago. Three, ancient civilizations around the world have stories about a cataclysmic flood. And four, the ruin of Gobekli Tepe suggests that human beings at least might have built cities during the Ice Age. These points together suggest to me, yes, Probably there was at least one city built during the Ice Age. It was destroyed by a massive flood, and the survivors of that flood told tales that were passed around for the rest of human history. If stories of an urban flood are what caused Plato to tell his story about Atlantis, then I say, good enough. I don't care if they were really named Atlantis. I don't care if they had hot and cold plumbing or if they were descended from Poseidon. I'm content to have my mind blown by the plausibility of the possibility of a prehistoric urban center that was drowned by glacial meltwater. That's astonishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Spectral Skulls Session. Tune in next week. We will be talking about the novelist, alleged black magician, and countercultural icon Robert Antoine Wilson, and his struggle with psychic messages, paranoia, and conspiracy theories during the heady days of the early 1970s. Until next time, I am Dave. Stay strange and stay sane.